Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 342, Psychology of the Exceptional Child. I hope you listen and enjoy. Welcome to Psychology 342, Psychology of the Exceptional Child. And this is class two. And we will be discussing, oh, session one, sorry. We'll be discussing the multicultural and bilingual aspects of education for children with disabilities. And we're also going to be looking at the impact of um, families um, of a disability when there's a child with that disability um, in the family. And you know that we're also going to look at intellectual and developmental disabilities. Now, y'all may have heard the term mental retardation um, in the past, and that with the intellectual disabilities is the new term for that. Um, so we'll look at um, both multicultural and bilingual aspects of special education and how those are going to um, impact children and again the effect of the child with a disability on the different people in the family. Um, we'll look at intellectual disabilities and looking at what that is and um, types of causes and then the various um, characteristics, psychological and behavioral characteristics of a child who might have an intellectual disability. Overall objectives, um, when we work with children, especially when we work with children who have intellectual disabilities, um, it is really important that we um, really are very caring when we work with them and that we have a good bit of compassion for um, issues that are beyond their control. And we have the ability here to model how God would want us to treat those children and be his hands and feet. We're going to look at the difference between a multicultural and a bilingual education, um, how we would work with those students who might be culturally diverse or even linguistically diverse from the way we were raised, and how to work positively with families who are um, also diverse in one of those ways. Other objectives are to look at how families function um, with the understanding that each family is unique. Um, looking at the effect of a child with a disability, particularly those low incidence ones um, where we know this very early on, like right after birth. Um, and looking at different reactions to birth of um, a child with disabilities, diff different cultures are going to see this in different ways. And our uh, Bible verses for this week will be Genesis 17, 4 and Romans 8, 28. So let's look at um, some cultural differences and some terminology that would play in here. Um, the definition of culture is um, anything that would be within a group of people that would include the value systems that this group of people would have and um, the language that they would share and the different worldviews that they might have. Um, it will be something again a culture can be a larger group like a country or a kind of a smaller subgroup of that country um, but people who share um, some traditions and values in common when we do education um, multiculturalism is acknowledging that there are many cultures that exist um, some of which we may know very little about 
And multicultural education is set up with the idea that we would show value for everyone who might be encompassed in our school and value their cultural background, and that we were not trying to say one um, culture is necessarily better than another culture. So we would incorporate the background of all students in our class. Um, it's a little bit different from bilingual education. Children um, who are um, gaining the competency in bilingual um, education may be coming to school only knowing a native language. Um, so we're trying to get the children very competent in English, even though this may not be a language that's spoken in their home. And this is actually quite common in schools right now. Um, I have a good friend who teaches kindergarten, and in her class right now, she has six children who are native Spanish speakers and two children who are native Turkish speaking. Their families are in the America going to school from Turkey. Um, and she is working with them, trying to get their English skills up to par. Um, and for her, since she doesn't know the Turkish language, she's using a lot of peer tutoring. Um, but we certainly try to get these individuals to English as quickly as we can. A um, couple more terms, a macro culture would be the shared culture. And if, since we live in America, we would be talking about shared culture in the United States. And there are many things that we would have in common. Uh, obviously, the type of community that we live in may vary a little bit from a very large, you know, a large city to a smaller town. But because of the media with the television and the internet, there's a lot of shared um, culture that we would see that we would have terminology we would all understand. However, there are very distinct subcultures as well in the United States. And um, so you would have uh, folks who would have, um, like the area in South Louisiana where I worked, would have the Cajun culture and the area um, had their own distinct language and their own distinct um, foods and celebrations and things like that. And you would have those same subcultures across the United States. Some of those are based on ethnic groups where you might have folks live together in a community and they all share sort of like an Irish heritage perhaps. Um, some of them are sort of like the southern culture where you might see folks living um, in the south who kind of have a lot of things in common that would be different from folks who might have the midwestern culture. Um, right now the federal government recognizes only five uh, distinct racial groups and based on the um, census you can mark yourself down as American Indian or Alaska Native and that would be one group Asian or Pacific Islander is your second and then Hispanic black and white and for the first time in 2010 we had spots for other and for two races that you could check as options. Um, you didn't fill in what those were, but you could mark that. And before 2010, you just had the five options and that was it. When we're doing multicultural education, one of the biggest goals that we have is to make sure that we don't look at a particular ethnic group and say, because you happen to fit this ethnic group, you would have an exceptionality um, that you would need a ruling for education. Um, there is no one ethnicity 
that would be high and um, everyone would have an exceptionality. So we would really want to make sure that we don't try to prejudge or have any kind of stereotype um, when it comes to exceptionality. And we also want to understand that having an exceptionality puts you in a particular microculture, kind of a subculture, and that there are those in that um, group of individuals who have an exceptionality, like those who might have uh, autism spectrum disorder, who live in a culture um, that is a little bit different from that of the mainstream individuals. And so how does that then relate in to um, the standard macro culture of the United States? I'm sorry, I just backed y'all up one somehow. Okay, so here you've got a little graph and you've got an individual there. And you can see that there are several overlapping circles that are indi indicative of the different cultures or subcultures a person might belong to. So if we just start up at the top, you can see that we would have the, um, the purple one. I'm going left here, the region of the country that you live in. And this might have some great impact on the type of foods that you would like to eat. Um, your religion um, is obviously going to have huge um, impacts on who you are. Um, if you have a disability, and remember we're talking about individuals who would, um, the gender that you are, um, the ethnic group that you come from, the race that you are, and the social class that you happen to find yourself, and that's usually tied to education and income. There's a lot of, again, overlap here, and you'll see that they all have impacts on the different person and make each individual a little bit different, even though they may have very similar subcultures. When we are dealing with children who are bilingual or beginning to be bilingual, they're linguistically diverse, or even those who were culturally diverse, it is a strong challenge if they also have a disability. Right. Some members of these children, they don't all have a disability, but if they do, they're more difficult sometimes to reach because they don't understand a lot of what um, we're trying to say to them and we may not know how best to approach them. Um, so we really have to think very carefully about where are we going to place this child in our least restrictive environment continuum that we get an appropriate setting for this individual and oftentimes we may go just a little more restrictive than we might if they weren't linguistically or culturally diverse and had a disability. Um, first thing that we really do need to focus on is English and that will be our beginning point where we will begin to teach them the English language and usually we use a technique called immersion, immersion where the, the kids are just going to learn it by being immersed into that language and we, we want to try to teach academics but we may have to get the English levels up best um, first before we can teach the academics. One of the things that you can use, my friend who's a kindergartner is having to do this um, because she doesn't know Turkish, is use a peer translator um, some schools won't be able to give you a translator in every language that um, you may be dealing with, and some don't provide them at all. Um, she's fortunate enough that her two children who speak Turkish, one speaks no English, uh, or at least didn't at the beginning of the school year, but the other one did. 
And once he got the okay from his mom, um, because he kept saying, you don't speak Turkish at school, just English. Once she approved it, he was able to serve as a peer translator and let her know what the child was saying and tell the child what she was saying. And eventually the child began to pick that up. Um, one of the things that we really need to address when it comes to looking at special ed programs is that sometimes we see, well, actually a lot of times we see disproportionate representation of students who are minority. And we see an overrepresentation of our minority students in our special ed programs. This is going to be particularly true for black male children. Um, and it's particularly true for the exceptionalities that include behavior disorders and learning disabilities. And so we see a lot more children here than it would look like there should be based on percentages of those children in the population. Um, however, the, the flip side is we don't usually see that many minority students who are represented in the gifted and talented programs, and they are underrepresented there. Um, there are different factors that seem to contribute to this, and one has to do with the relationship between um, the level that the family um, has in terms of their socioeconomic status and um, schooling. And so this would mean that a lot of these children who are living in poverty, many minority um, children would fit this category, um, they are frequently finding themselves um, having some um, difficulty with schooling just because they don't have necessary supplies. In terms of identification procedures, one of the biggest issues is that uh, the teachers that we have in our schools are 90% white middle-class females, and their version of who would likely be gifted oftentimes doesn't include children from minority status. They're not really looking to expect to see those children be gifted, and they're not looking for that. And they also are assuming that some of those children might be um, having more exceptionalities like a behavior problem. Um, another issue that really plays to this is the type of methodology that has been taught within families in terms of how to learn material. Um, what we'll see is that you're going to have children from some of the minority groups. This is particularly true for the Hispanic groups and somewhat true for some of the children who are um, African-American, but not all, is that their families are teaching them in a more cooperative, intuitive way. Uh, let's work together. Let's um, build this model of a farm together. And, and they're, they're having dictation from the parents on let's how we'll do this. Children from the majority white culture are typically raised as um, very analytical, um, very competitively. Um, if we're playing with these children, we'll ask them to think through what would you like for us to do. Um, if we're reading a book, um, in the minority culture we just read, in the majority white culture we oftentimes ask a lot of questions about why do you think that happened. Um, most of the teachers are going to teach it from that competitive analytical view. And for children who were raised with that style already, this will be very easy for them. 
it will be much more difficult for those children who were from the minority groups who've learned a more cooperative way. And so those children may struggle a little bit more at the beginning of school, and we may make some stereotypic assumptions about those children that they can't do the work and couldn't possibly be gifted. And those factors do contribute to this representation.